Good. Well, uh, as you can see from this middle screen that's been there all morning, we are enjoying a series at the moment about being forged, forged by God, by his power to become what he intends for us to be, that is to be made into his image. And this morning, we're going to be looking at two subjects, all blended together, coming together, two subjects which we might have taken two different weeks to consider. Uh, One of those is the fact that we are forged for good works. That is, we are forged by God to act according to his purposes. As it says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he's prepared in advance for us to do. That's one thing. God's forging us to enable us to do what he desires. The other thing is that he's forged us for relationship with him. He's forged us to be people who pray. As uh, actually as St. Augustine put it, God has made us, forged us if you like, God has made us for himself. And our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. It's a relationship with God in which it's well expressed in our praying, our talking with God, our listening to him, that intimacy that we've been reminded about this morning. We're made both to do good works and we're made for relationship with God. Those are two great truths, and we could have taken a whole morning to focus on either one of them. But this morning, we're specifically going to look at how those two great purposes come together. And we're going to be helped to do that, first of all, by looking in Exodus chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Exodus chapter 17. If you don't, we're going to help you because it's on the screen anyway. But you may like to have it in front of you. Check that I'm doing it accurately and uh, have a little look at the context as well if you wish to do so. This is in the, the context is that the Israelites, the Hebrews, have been set free from slavery in Egypt and they're now wandering in the desert and getting close to the promised land when they are attacked. They're attacked by the descendants of Amalek who therefore go by the name of the Amalekites. The Amalekites came and they attacked. They attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Am I coming on and off a little bit? It just sounds like I am. Okay, I've got a little bit of a cold, so if I have an altered perception of reality, we'll put it down to that. Let's start again. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands... The Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that the hands remained steady till sunset. 
But jo- and so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. There's a picture that someone's drawn of it here with the army down in the valley. Uh, this staff of Moses was something very specific about which God had spoken. That's recorded in Exodus 4, verse 17, where God says, with this staff, uh, you will do miraculous signs. You will do wonders. And in 2 Timothy, in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So this story is God-breathed, and it's good for us. It's useful for our teaching. So um, now, I don't know of anybody here who's heard from God that he's given you a stick with which to do wonders. I'm not aware of anyone. So the direct application of this passage, which is the stick that I've given you for doing miracles with, hold it up. That's probably not the application for any one of us. But there is an application here, which is to do with the interaction between our work and our dependence on the intervention of God. That whatever, we might not have a stick through which the intervention comes, but actually as we pray, we invite God's intervention God's sustaining, God's support, God's power to be at work. And it's a wonderful illustration for us, this picture of how our praying works together with our action. And our action alone is not powerful. But action combined with prayer is how we see God's victory. There is a synergy between prayer and action. But we often... We often default to the, the belief that, that God doesn't get involved in everyday matters, but that he just sort of sometimes does things, performing miracles in extraordinary circumstances, that God's, uh, God's intervention is somehow an occasional thing. Uh, as it, what we, if we pray, as we sometimes do for heaven to invade earth, uh, we might somehow be thinking it's like the, the whole earth spins on its axis and it just kind of keeps going somehow and all the natural laws are operating. But we're asking God to intervene and somehow get involved. We're asking God to somehow turn up and take an interest. And as a result, prayer for a number of us may be a last resort when all the actions have been exhausted. We've tried everything we can do and, and then eventually get to prayer. What we're going to look at this morning is how that's not God's best for us. God's with us at all times, and we can pray at all times. And that praying comes together with the good works that he calls us to and causes them to work powerfully. We may sometimes be blind to God's presence. We sang in that wonderful song, uh, Waymaker. There's an overflow of blessing from Nigeria coming to us through that song, um, even when I don't feel it, you are working. And sometimes we, we may be blind or insensitive to God's presence in our lives, but he's never absent from our lives. In the good times, but in the dark nights at hospital bedsides, he is Emmanuel, God with us. This is well described by this lady, Corrie Ten Boom. I don't know if you know her story. She came from a Christian family, And this Christian family from the Netherlands were sent to a Nazi concentration camp 
for hiding Jews from the Nazis to keep them safe. This is what she said. Having been in a very dark place, (laughs) trying to do the Lord's work in your own strength is the most confusing, exhausting, and tedious of all work. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then the ministry of Jesus, it just flows out of you. It's describing for us what we're invited to in the Christian life, a life of intimacy with God in which we bring things before him, pray, and his power comes in to work in our lives. I want to um, tell you about another European, this time a German, who made his home in Britain nearly 200 years ago. This guy called George Muller. Have you heard of George Muller? A number of you have. What an amazing story. I'm going to take some time this morning to tell you something of this man's story. If you've heard of him already, you won't mind hearing it again. If you've not heard of him, then you're in for a treat. Although... His story doesn't start well. George Muller started off life in, born in Germany. He started off life as a liar and a cheat. He stole money from his parents and he swindled his friends. His father was a tax collector who kept tax, uh, tax money that he'd collected at home. At the age of 10, George Muller began stealing government money from his father. Uh, at the age of 14, when his mother was dying the age of 14, as his mother lay dying, George Muller was out playing cards, gambling away some of the money that he'd stolen. The age of 16, he was in prison for failing to pay a hotel bill. Then, the age of about 20, in 1825, he attended a prayer meeting, dragged along, actually by a fellow student as he was then studying at university, He attended a prayer meeting, and in that prayer meeting, he saw a man on his knees in prayer to God. And something about that man's praying, or God did something through that moment of seeing that man praying. And it led George Muller, when he went home, to kneel down by his own bed and to ask God for help. And God met him. He was changed. Within a few years, he'd moved to England specifically to work as a missionary to Jews living in London, but then he fell ill and moved to Devon, but ended up in Bristol. Then in Bristol, in 1832, the widespread outbreak of cholera that was sweeping through Western Europe got as far as Bristol. And in Bristol, um, that cholera outbreak left 584 people dead. And as a result, left many orphan infants that no one was caring for. Uh, in that, at that time, uh, in the early 1830s, there was provision across the whole of England for a total of 3,600 orphans to be cared for. And actually, there were more than twice as many children under eight uh, in prison than there were being cared for. Uh, George Muller and his wife Mary decided, well, led by the Lord, to convert their own house into a home that would accommodate many children. And they brought in 30 girls for whom no one was caring into their home. 
And then, within a couple of years, they'd rented three more houses, all on the same street, providing homes for 130 children. So began a work, which expanded and expanded. A few decades later, by 1870, in Bristol, there were five purpose-built houses that made space to accommodate and to care for 2,050 orphans for whom no one else had been caring. Uh, That care for children was a mainstay of George Muller's life. And when he got to the age of 70, you would have thought that he would do what many people do, which is to say, well, that's been good. Someone else should pick up doing some stuff now. In fact, at the age of 70, he began another season of life. At the age of 70, bearing in mind that this is the late 1800s with no easy jet, he began to travel internationally. And he began another season of his life, which lasted for 17 years. So between the ages of 70 and 87, he traveled internationally, uh, speaking uh, about church unity, about care for the poor, and simply proclaiming the gospel message. Uh, In those 17 years, it's estimated that he addressed over 3 million people. He visited 40 different countries, including tours of North America, India, China, Egypt, Turkey, Palestine, as it was known then, Poland, Russia, Australia, New Zealand, Sri Lanka, uh, Ceylon, as it would have been known then, Italy, Austria, Germany, Bohemia, Singapore, Japan, and the Straits of Malacca between the ages of 70 and 87. He and his wife Mary had two children stillborn and a third child who died at 15 months of age leaving just one daughter named Lydia. And then George Muller was widowed as his wife Mary died when he was aged 65. Uh, Having been widowed, he remarried and also enjoyed working together with his daughter Lydia in these orphan houses um, until Lydia also died before he did. And he lost his final child at the age of 84. And his second wife then also died when he was aged 89, before he finally died at the age of 92. When George Muller died, he he had um, not only seen these orphan houses built in Bristol, which are still there, a place called Ashley Down. You can go and see them. They dominate a ridge in the city. But actually, uh, through his influence and the ministry and the network that he started, they started 117 schools of different kinds, serving over 100,000 children. He inspired so many other people that by the time he died, the the 3,000 or so orphans that had been cared for one way or another, for example, at at the Foundling Hospital in North London and a few other places, those 3,000 orphans had become, in England, over 100,000 orphans who were in care. There was an increase in care in the nation 
because of the influence of what they had done. So much so that George Muller was accused by people of raising the poor above their natural station. (laughs) When he died, I hope this is the picture I've got here, this is his funeral in Bristol, at which tens of thousands of people turned out to pay their respects. What is remarkable in all of this story is that all of that work, all of that activity, cost quite a lot of money. You can imagine caring for, running 117 schools. They managed to do that on about about 50,000 pounds a year, which in modern money is about 3 million pounds a year. So I think that's, if you've got issues with current school funding and whether it's enough, then there's a little bit of a historic comparison. Um, they, they, they ran them very efficiently financially, but they still cost a lot of money. This is the thing. This is the key thing, really, in George Muller's life. They never once asked anyone for any money for anything, but resolved only to ask God in prayer. And the reason for that is it ties into George Muller's primary motivation for running these orphanages. As you, you would think, the natural assumption would be there are children in need of care, that's the motive, therefore, to provide care. Actually, that was motive number three in George Muller's list of reasons that he gave for why this care was provided. Here's his first reason. It was to do with the glory of God. He wrote, the first and primary object of the work is that God may be magnified by the fact that the orphans under my care are provided for with all they need only by prayer without anyone being asked by me or my fellow laborers for money, whereby it may be seen that God is still faithful and still hears prayer. He put it on another occasion slightly differently. I have dedicated my whole life cheerfully to the precious service of giving to the world and to the church a clear, distinct, and undeniable demonstration that it is a blessed thing to trust in God and wait upon God, that he is now, as he ever was, the living God. In 1845... George Muller wrote that for the last seven years, they had rarely had more funds available than to cover the next three days. I want to tell you three specific stories uh, that I trust will encourage you. That was the quote, and here we go. Here's a story. One day... In the orphan houses, they had run out of food. 300 children sat waiting for their breakfast. George prayed to God and thanked God for the breakfast that they were about to eat, confident that God would provide food for them. There was a knock at the door. And the baker was standing outside with a big load of bread He said that God had woken him up in the night. No, that's before the prayer. God had woken him up in the night 
and told him to bake more bread than usual and to take it to the orphanage. George said thank you for the bread and took it inside for the children. There was another knock at the door. This time it was the milkman. A wheel on his cart had broken right outside the orphanage, and he didn't want to leave the cart and go and get what he needed to fix it, as he said the milk would get stolen in the meantime, so he decided to give the milk to George for the children instead, and so breakfast was provided. That's neat, isn't it? I like that. I'm sure you do too. Here's another story. It's to do with this picture of one of the places that was built. This is to do with the spiritual well-being of the children. And again, this is, this is now in George Muller's words. He wrote this. This relates to the year 1872. The spiritual condition of the orphans generally gave us to great sorrow of heart because there were so few among them who were in earnest about their souls, so few among them resting on the atoning death of the Lord Jesus for salvation. This sorrow led us to earnestly seek the Lord's blessing on the souls of the children. This was done in our united prayer meetings, that is, praying together, and I have reason to believe in secret also, that is, people praying by themselves. And in answer to these, our secret and united prayers... In the year 1872, the Lord began to work. In the new house, number three, it first showed itself least, this new work, till it pleased the Lord to lay his hand heavily on that house by the incursion of smallpox. And from that time, the working of the Holy Spirit was felt in that house also. At the end of July 1872, I received the statements from all the matrons and teachers in the five houses who reported to me that after careful observation and conversation, they had good reason to believe that 729 of the orphans then under our care were believers in the Lord Jesus. This number of believing orphans is by far greater than we had ever had, for which we adore and praise the Lord. See how the Lord overruled the great trial occasioned by smallpox and turned it into a great blessing. See also how, after so low a state comparatively, which led us to prayer, then earnest prayer, after earnest prayer, the working of the Holy Spirit was more manifest than ever. And the third story, this is the steamship Sardinian, which George Muller boarded to travel to Canada in those later years of international travel that he began. What happened on that occasion was that a thick fog settled around the ship, and it caused the captain to reduce the ship's speed to dead slow, posting men to watch the way ahead for safety's sake. And then this is the story as told by the captain of the ship. He recorded, I'd been on the bridge for 22 hours and never left it. I was startled then by someone tapping me on the shoulder. It was George Muller. 
a man of God from Bristol. Captain, he said, I've come to tell you that I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. (laughs) This was Wednesday. Captain said, it's impossible. Very well, said George Muller. If your ship can't take me, God will find another means to take me. I've never broken an engagement in 57 years. I said, I would willingly help you, but how can I? I'm helpless. He said, let's go down to the chart room and pray. I looked at that man of God, and I thought to myself, what lunatic asylum could the man have come from? (laughs) I'd never heard of such a thing. Mr. Muller, I said, do you know how dense the fog is? No, he replied. My eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. He got down on his knees and prayed one of the most simple prayers. I muttered to myself, that prayer would not suit a children's class where the children are no more than eight years old. (laughs) The burden of his prayer was something like this. O Lord... If it is consistent with your will, please remove this fog in five minutes. You know the engagement you've made for me in Quebec on Saturday. I believe it is your will. When he finished praying, I was going to pray, says the captain, but he put his hand on my shoulder and told me not to pray. He said, firstly, you don't believe it'll work. (laughs) Secondly, I believe it has and there is no need for you to pray. (laughs) I looked at him, and George Muller said this, Captain, I have known the Lord for 57 years, and there has never been a single day that I have failed to gain an audience with the king. Get up, Captain, and open the door, and you will find the fog is gone. I got up, the fog was gone. I may add, says the captain, George Muller got there on time on Saturday afternoon. (laughs) (sighs) Life full of good works, saturated every day with an audience with the king. We're invited into that too. We're invited to the same. And then our good works are not a, a... challenging drudgery of of frustration and fruitlessness, but prayed for, talked out with the King of Kings who invites us into an audience with him. There is a power. Actually, if we go right back then to Exodus 17, we can describe that power actually as, as a victory, as conquest. The New Testament describes us as more than conquerors in Christ. So we'll finish in a moment by praying. I want to just uh, let you know two things that George Muller said about prayer and action. Two things that he said about prayer and action. This is one thing that he wrote. Work with all your might, but trust not in the least in your work. Work with all your might, but trust in it not in the least. That's interesting, isn't it? Because most of us are motivated to work because we think it's our work that's going to get the job done. For George Muller, working was about obedience and doing the right thing and stewarding things well, but it's not in the 
our power to work that we trust. Actually, the psalmist puts the same thought slightly differently. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. I mean, and this must have been this truth that we work with all our might, but we don't trust in it. Must have been literally painfully obvious to the Israelites on the plain as Moses is holding up his staff, painfully obvious. When the staff's not being held up, they're getting hacked, injured, painfully obvious that it's not our strength alone. I wonder what it is we trust in. Uh, If you're a student at Oxford University, you almost certainly trust in your intelligence, which is a shame because God could take it away. It's not very reliable after all. Maybe you trust in your pension pot. Maybe you trust in the career path that you're on. I, maybe you trust in if you're married in, with your marriage partners. They're going to see you through. I don't know what else we trust in. There's all manner of things that actually are good blessings given by God. But we... It's God that we trust as the giver of those blessings. If God's blessed you with intelligence, well, then praise him and uh, recognize that it's him who sustains you. If God's given you a great pension pot, well, praise him. um, But be aware that pension pots can disappear on mismanaged stock markets. You can't trust that. You can trust him. Uh, I don't know how many of you have picked up the news that um, Tyndale Community School, which this is news that has been shared in the school this week, at Tyndale Community School, which we helped to begin as a church seven years ago, is almost certainly going to be... Uh, re- Malcolm really helped me yesterday with this, turn, this way of looking at it. It's going to be repotted. The school has been part of a multi-academy trust called Chapel Street, of which I am um, a board member, and that's been a really nice arrangement to have. But without going into all the ins and outs, uh, it is being required that the school is removed from the Chapel Street Schools Trust, which is what it's been part of, and put somewhere else. And it's been a really interesting process for me. I actually got an email about it on the last night of our summer camp. And we'd been praying, uh, gathering in a field in Worcestershire, and praying for supernatural breakthrough. And at the end of the camp, at its climax, I got an email saying this. It's an interesting timing. And it's taken me quite a few months to realize that I'd come to trust in, not so much in... Chapel Street as a brand or something, but the work that we were doing in that context would be what safeguarded the future of the school. And it's a bit of a journey just to remember what's true, that God is the guardian. God is the chief safeguarder of all good things. And actually, already, uh, Keith and I have been in various meetings about what the new pot might be, and actually, we're really positive that um, actually the new pot looks really good. You know, the, the likely new pot looks, looks really good, like a better pot to be in. Uh, there's no, no, currently, there's no cause for anxiety, but actually, it's a really 
positive thing that we wouldn't have chosen, but that God knows what's best for us. But even then, there's a danger, isn't there, to start to say, oh, great, well, if we're working with those people, then we'll be all right, won't we? When in actual fact, don't trust in the least in your work. That's one thing that George Muller learned. Now, here's another thing which touches more on... I'll have to explain this for a moment before the quote makes sense to you. This is a key thing that changed his prayer life. For the first 10 years of this life of trusting God for all the resources that are needed to care for orphans, for the first 10 years of that, which is quite a long time, uh, George Muller prayed and trusted God, but he reports that he always found it a real struggle to pray. And then something changed for him. Uh, One simple habit changed his, the praying that he'd done diligently and because he knew he was supposed to, changed it from that into something that just flowed and, and, and wasn't a struggle in the same way. And that was that instead of starting his prayers with the needs that he knew existed, he read the scriptures and then prayed out of whatever they had revealed to him. And that's what this quote is about. My heart, being nourished by the truth, that is, I've been reading the Bible, and the truth has come, and the Word of God isn't just information, it's much more than that. My heart, being nourished by the truth, being brought into fellowship with God, I speak to my father and friend about the things he has brought before me in his precious Word. This is a habit of praying on the basis of what God has said rather than simply out of how I'm feeling in this moment or the needs that I perceive at this time. And for him, it was even even after 10 years of seeing daily provision and stories like the bread just appearing in time for breakfast, there was a breakthrough that he discovered in prayer by learning the simple habit of praying off the Scriptures. Moses held up the staff on the basis of what God had spoken. There in Exodus 4, and verse 17, God said, With this staff, you'll do wonders. God had spoken it. And on that basis that God had spoken, Moses could stand and then sit and then be held up at the top of the hill with the staff saying, God, you spoke. This is what you said, God. This is what you said. This isn't, I'm not just doing this because there's a need. I'm doing what flows from your word, the things that he has brought before me in and through his precious word. So that's how we're going to finish with our praying this morning. We're going to have two bouts of prayer. We're going to have on the screen a scripture, uh, which may, it's chosen in the light of the fact we've got an election coming. That's in mind. But instead of simply provoking us to pray for the election, we're going to look at these words here from 1 Timothy 2, and allow these to be a springboard for our prayers. Whatever precious truths, whatever nourishment of your heart there is from this scripture, I'm going to invite you to turn to prayer. Now, um, I'm assuming that most people here want to pray, and it's like, let me at the praying. If, there, if you're someone who's a bit unsure about praying, please don't feel that you you have to do what everyone else is doing and to join in in that way. But there's an invitation as others pray to join in. I urge then, 
Paul writes to Timothy, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So we're going to pray on that basis. We're going to pray in these two bouts of praying in differing ways. Our normal habit is to get into small groups and pray together. But there's another habit of prayer which is really common around the global church that I would like us to discover more and more. And that's the way of praying when we all stand up and we just all pray at once, aloud, and uh, some kind of torrent of prayer rises up from us. See, a few people are nodding because they're like, yeah, well, that's how you pray. Because <laughs> it's, 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 why do you British people do it in that passive way? Like, Anyway, there we go. Um, so those of you that know this, because it's how you were brought up, and you, you've got to help us, and you're like, you've, got to, you've got to pray really well, and then we'll, those that are less used to praying altogether in that way can, can join in. But can I invite you to stand? just going to give you another, uh, another moment just to read over those words, and then we're going to pray for a, a minute or two, boom, all going for it together.